Because you are coming from Arizona, can, before we jump to other stuff, can you explain me, especially in Phoenix, Scottsdale and all that stuff, how come it's sort of a golf capital? It's the desert. How, how do they manage to maintain so many... Well, it's the temperature. The, I mean, it's the, the weather. Yeah, it's, it's entirely the weather. So, you know, right now it's in the mid-60s to low-70s. So you can play all day long and that's really what it's about. And so all the resorts, you know, are, have some form of a, of a golf site either attached to them or a partnership that they're in. And um, then there's also the waste management open is held there. So you get a lot of hmm. press um, related to that. So that happens uh, in February. So August, right? It will be 110, 120 How do yep. they keep the grass green? Well, a lot of them don't. I mean, there's the, you know, the grass is going to be different from the grass that you see in Illinois, right? And, and so a lot of them will allow a certain level of browning or the grass it can brown and then still come back to life. And it's, you know, back to your supply and demand. A course that costs you $450 to play at right now will cost you $50 to play at in June, July, and August. By the way, are you a golfer or I'm just asking? Yeah. Oh, no, more of a hiker. I, I mean, I've, I, I, I have golfed. I've done the lessons thing multiple times, but it's never stuck. So, uh, Listen, uh, this is where I need to give a shout out to uh, Green Knight 3 and all the other folks that... Luckily for me, or thanks to them, every time in, we have the big conference in Shorter Connect in Vegas, they sponsor one of the top golf, and that's the only time that I actually have the opportunity to practice my swing. Otherwise, sadly, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm far yeah. from being a golfer. So, and for you, you define yourself as a, a foodie and a wine person. Any specific wine that you can recommend people? Uh, if you Or like Italian wines, there is a very good um, Brunello by Carpazzo, C-A-R-P-A-Z-O, I believe. Um, very easy to find, relatively reasonable for a Brunello, highly recommend it. And okay. then yeah. I was just going to say U.S. wine. If you want something very unique and complex, Cole Salar, which is a um, Antonori family wine, but it's out of Washington State. Very good. Thank you very much. Usually I keep the, hey, can you give us a tip and a recommendation to the end of the podcast? But thank you for being a good sport. And, you know, without hesitation and blinking, immediately threw that in. So if you don't mind, now I will do a very rough segue and talk about your company, what you're doing in the insurance industry, and how you help and supply capacity. Uh, we are a general agency or sometimes referred to as a program administrator. Um, we're also an incubator. So in addition to writing business on behalf of the capacity we represent, we also build um, underwriting series, as we call them, 
for those folks who have that entrepreneurial spirit, but may not have the wherewithal to want to do the entire, you know, company build perspective of starting themselves. How long have you been in insurance? Well, I've been in insurance for 27 years. Um, Mission has been around since February of 2021. I was employee number one. Um, we currently now have 22 of these series that I'll say are signed up. We have approximately 12 of them writing business and the others are in various stages of implementation. Now, the main reason I reached out to talk to you is because I was very curious about who and how provide capacity. And I think that most people, especially entrepreneurs, and we can define entrepreneurs as, you know, as in short tech entrepreneurs that, hey, we are, we are engineers all coming and see insurance and we want to digitalize everything and we have so much energy. And people are like, hmm, insurance, I've been in that all my life. This, this can be a great business. Let's see what else we can do. The thing is they just see the product or the, the crust and capacity, it's everything that's behind it. And it's always Correct. a question, how do people understand the mechanism between the big entities and shifting the risk? And maybe we can start with a little bit of 101, or let's call it insurance 101 lessons. What is capacity and how the different entities work it around? Sure. So capacity, or typically it's referred to as carriers that provide capacity, um, they're basically taking on risk, right? So for whatever product line we're talking about, um, they're taking the risk of that product onto their books for a premium or a price. And in our space, we're focused on small commercial property and casualty insurance and wide ranging in that space, but they're all smaller entities. And what you're doing is you're looking as, as a small company, you're looking to hedge your bet, if you will, against something negative happening to your business. And so that's what you're using the capacity for by shifting that risk to the carrier. And when or where the a program administrator steps in? So generally speaking, a program administrator, um, very similar, but a little bit different from an MGA, but you'll hear people interchange those. They are the expertise from an underwriting perspective and are writing business on behalf of the capacity. So you have carriers that entirely write everything with underwriters that they employ. You have carriers that entirely utilize program administrators and MGAs. So they do not have underwriting teams on staff other than from a monitoring perspective. And then you have carriers that do a combination of both. So it's all about leveraging the relationships of the underwriters and determining where you're going to get, you know, the most volume of business for the capacity that you want to write. Now, before we jump into the incubator you know, or the accelerator for this capacity, which is very interesting because we see 
that need more emerging, especially for the insurtechs, as there is a maturity of understanding that it's not just about the distribution channels, which is a must for any young MGA. Mm-hmm. For you, what type, and if you can provide examples, that will be great. What type of companies do you work with in your incubator? So we're actually starting the companies. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we are identifying individuals that have that niche expertise that align with the capacity that we can bring with our partners and we are setting them up for success. So we are providing them the company infrastructure, the digital platform and the, and the related services that they need to enable the underwriting process. Mm-hmm. but it's within our environment. So we're unique in that, you know, if you think of a spectrum, on one end of the spectrum, you have what I mentioned earlier, where you have a carrier that has departments and they'll have a department that writes property business. They'll have a separate department that writes DNO. They're all employees, right? And so mm-hmm. they're all going to be paid a salary. They're all gonna have bonus structures. They may have stock opportunities, what have you. On the far other end of the spectrum, you can start your own company, which means you have to have your own capital or go find it. You have to you know, create all of the company infrastructure. You've got to find a policy administration system. And the hardest part, you've got to find capacity. Mission sits in between in the middle of that spectrum and provides the benefits of both while limiting some of the negative aspects. So you are an employee, and so you have all of the benefits of being an employee, but you also have a greater ownership in your own destiny. So you have shares in not your department, but your company, which is similar to a subsidiary is the best way to think about it, right? So we're setting up these subsidiaries so that you can have your own identity you can have your own distribution mechanisms and you have your own product, but then we're providing all of the supporting mechanism and the investment in you as a team or individuals in order to go out and write on behalf of our partners. It's the best way I can think of without going into the legalese of how we're, Mm -hmm. how we're structured. But um, the key is, is that each, series as we call them, um, are insulated to a larger degree than a department would be in a company from the other series. So they're not Mm -hmm. hurt by what the other series are doing if one's not doing well, but they also don't benefit from it. So that's where it's more aligned with their own destiny and their own capabilities to see how they can grow the business. And they don't have mm -hmm. to, sorry. They don't have to market themselves as mission. They can market themselves based on the identity that they've created. So what that, let's call them EIRs, entrepreneurial residents that later on you're going to set free, what do they bring to the table? So you say, you know, Joe, go ahead. You have, you identified a great niche a specialty, go for it. We'll be behind you. Yeah, it's really two things. We're looking for people that have 
a depth of underwriting expertise in whatever that niche is. Mm-hmm. And they have at least a significant start from a distribution perspective, right? So you're expecting that these individuals are not somebody that's only been underwriting for two years. These are people that have been in the business for a significant amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they know the ins and outs of their niche. And then they've also developed over the years a distribution network that's going to allow them to, you know, take their name, if you will, um, from wherever they're sitting today to what they're going to build so that they know when they call that broker, the broker is going to realize that they're dealing with the person they want to deal with, regardless of who the carrier is. Now, licensing wise, do they need to create their own licensing and take it national or are you providing support with that? We provide that. So that's, that's where the ownership piece has to come in, right? Is there, they're leveraging our licensing and then they also get the economies of scale of all of the other contracts that we write because then they all can take part in that. So rather than having, if these were 20 separate companies, right, there would be 20 separate, for instance, policy administration uh, license agreements. We have one that then allows us to utilize it because we're all one company at the end of the day. Have you worked with the new entrepreneurs, the tech entrepreneurs that started to show up in the industry and started the short tech crave? Yeah, we've we've met with a number of them. Um, we have not started a series with one yet. Um, the challenge there has always been they'll have a great piece of technology that will, you know, further enable, enhance, what have you, a component of the insurance process, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times they don't understand the regulatory environment in insurance. And that's usually the holdup. So like, for instance, you can't, you can't vend out a license, right? That's not something you can just go rent. You have to have it as a company. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there are various rules depending on who your target audience is as to how you can reach out to them. And that's where the brokers come in. So you have to understand the broker relationships and wholesale versus retail. Um, there's a whole another series of things you have to be aware of if you're going to direct to consumer. So that's where we try to have a conversation with them about what they're trying to accomplish, which means do you really want to be a company in insurance or do you want to be a tech company that sells to insurance right absolutely yeah and we think we've come up with a mechanism that will allow them to be a little bit of both but we haven't uh we haven't launched one yet how do your eirs uh, other entrepreneurs insurance entrepreneurs can build relationship with brokers so I think it's all, it's, it's all about two things. It's ease of doing business. And then as a subset of that general responsiveness, right? I mean, the brokers are critical. That's the distribution mechanism we're asking them to bring with them. Right. And outside of their reputation with that broker, what's going to maintain the relationship 
is making sure that that broker feels like if they call so-and-so series, they're going to have a good experience in the back and forth and that they're going to um, get a quote quickly, right? And that it's going to be very seamless to them. When you start having delays or noise, then that's when a broker is going, and rightfully so, is going to really say, what's the difference between A and B, right? So really, I would say that there's, um, in addition to those underwriters that we discussed, so we're always open to having conversations with underwriters that, you know, are looking to make a change um, and will look to see if there's a fit from a capacity or if somebody may have capacity lined up, but they don't have an infrastructure in order to leverage it, right? Those, those are really the opportunities from the underwriting perspective. Um, there's another perspective that we haven't talked about yet, and that is for carriers that are out there, um, we can assist them in leveraging the capacity they have for minimal investment. So if you just think about um, a carrier and its appetite, the appetite might be this big, mm-hmm. but they only have the resources to leverage this much internally. They can utilize a company like Mission to fill in those gaps so that they get a better fill, if you will, of the appetite that they have in a faster mechanism than just trying to wait to build it out on their own. Now, do you take into consideration the different uh, risk appetite that the carriers have, especially for, well, only in commercial? Yeah. So, I mean, we're agnostic. So as long as the carrier has an appetite for it, we can create a series in order to leverage that appetite. And then we have, you know, a host of tools and services that we can either bring to bear if we've got it or can add to the series for that particular, you know, exposure. couple of questions more of a macro level mm-hmm. what do you think about or what's your opinion we are going to see in 2023 we have a few we had a few cats in 2022 yeah. and we have a looming recession how do you think it's going to impact the next year or maybe even uh, 2024 yeah i think um There's a lot of unknowns. Cats are not going to go away, in my opinion. So I think we'll, we're more likely to see some additional cats in 2023. I think that that's a safe bet just from, mm-hmm. you know, what we're seeing in weather patterns. Um, as far as the economy is concerned, I think there's, there's still an opportunity for it to not go into a recession. Um, And from an insurance perspective, it really depends on what segments get hit the hardest as to whether or not it's even going to affect insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about property and casualty, you know, some of the news articles that you see about Amazon cutting jobs or um, Google cutting jobs, that's going to hit the workers' compensation component of P&C um, yeah. harder uh, from a claim volume perspective. So 
you know, it's, it, it's going to very much depend on which segments um, are the ones that really get hit. I don't think we're going to see from an insurance perspective, um, anything that's happening now, there's a delayed effect because of the policies that are in place and you've got to get to the renewal period, right? So that's, we're going to see a delayed response just by the nature of the business. Um, then you might, you know, if you're looking at retail numbers as an example. So obviously when you eliminate tens of thousands of people or, or even just mm -hmm. thousands of people, um, you're eliminating a far, far bigger number than anything that the claims would have created. So, um, you're still going to reap some benefits from the smaller compensation that you have to, you know, account for. Um, but you are, you are likely to see an uptick in your workers comp experience, mm -hmm. uh, at least initially, and especially depending on the types of, uh, workforce that you have. So let's assume that this recession has some sort of similarity to 2008, 2009, which means there will be a 2010, which everyone go like, okay, prosperity, let's build higher, etc. How should people in the space prepare to that? Did we, from, you know, from your memory, it's been 12 years ago. It was 12 years ago. What happened then and how did that impact? Was there also a delay in the recovery? So you're going to have, there. there's more of a delay in the drop-off than there is in the pickup. And that's because as you have more activity, then you have to ensure that activity, right? So if, for instance, you're writing uh, construction business. If there's a big drop in construction, then you're going to see a later delay uh, from a policy perspective, right? Because then you're not going to be doing all of the projects or projects are going to get truncated, those kinds of things. When the economy starts to come back, then you get a flood of those contracts. And so you immediately have to have the policies to cover them. Right. So it tends to be a little bit less of a lag. Now, that's very dependent on the, the line of insurance coverage we're talking about. Right. Um, again, using my example of DNO, DNO is not going to change all that much. Right. That's directors and officers insurance. So unless companies completely go under, you're still going to need directors and officers insurance um, at a significant level for a significant number of companies uh, regardless. So it's very product line specific. My audience usually are entrepreneurs, investors, carriers, other parties in this beautiful industry, the insurance industry. Somehow it's global because I have the opportunity to interview, although I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, I've had the opportunity to interview people from, well, from Japan to whatever will be the other side of the world, which is, I think, us in the West Coast. Um, who should reach out to you? Who would you like to talk with? So both, um, both under, underwriters and carriers that have an interest in the series concept for the U.S., 
Um, we do have a mission UK and EU. So I have a counterpart um, who is out of London, who runs a very similar operation to mine, but in that space. So we have a pretty wide, uh, wide reach. Um, and, you know, people are always welcome to start with me and we'll get them to the right spot if it's better suited for someone else. Final question. It's a question that I'm asking everyone, and you already gave one answer to it. And so I'm always asking for, can you give us a tip, a recommendation? And I know that you recommended the wine, but maybe you can recommend something else, a place to visit or a hike to take if someone reaches a Phoenix. I would say that uh, if you get to Phoenix, you know, everybody is going to tell you to do Camelback Mountain because that's kind of the the yeah. tourist mountain. Um, there are Check. an awful lot of there are a lot of great trails um, and I'm a big fan of the app called All Trails. Mm -hmm. So take some time and look at that and then you'll be able to find some real gems that won't be, you know, bombarded with tourists. I love that app. They, they provide great, I think that the most important feature in the app, beside the pictures and all the trail and where to go, is where to park. Especially, yes. it's like, okay, great, I'm driving there, where do I put the car, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Fantastic. Keith, thank you very, very much for joining me today. It was a pleasure talking to you and to see that part of the industry. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it.